Well, bow with me in prayer, would you? Our Father, um, some of us think about eternity a lot. Others of us don't think about it very often. We're pretty consumed with the here and now and the things that are going on in our lives uh, from day to day and week in and week out. And Lord, my prayer is that this morning that you would enlighten us, that you would open our eyes to the truth about being prepared for heaven. And Lord, give us truth from your vantage point and not from our own. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm curious. um, How many of you saw one of those billboards around town announcing that the Lord is coming back on May 21st? See those? Yeah, they were kind of all over the place there for a while. What was your response when you saw it? I've got to be honest, I, I was somewhat cynical. I've always been taught, beware of the date setters. I remember years ago, uh, sitting in a meeting room in a hotel, listening to a guy who'd just written a book, and he was explaining to us that there were 88 reasons why Jesus was going to come back in 1988. Date setters, with their complex formulas and calculations for the return of Christ, have been around for centuries and they've come and gone, and one thing is true, they were all wrong. As far as we know, Jesus hasn't returned. So I admit, when I saw those billboards announcing the return of Jesus next Saturday, I was a little bit cynical. On the other hand, I do believe that the Lord is going to return for his people. I do. Jesus promised it. John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. That's what he said. And take you to be with me, you also may be where I am. So he he promised to come back and to take his people home, home to the Father's house, home to a place prepared for us, home to heaven. Will Jesus come back this next Saturday at 6 p.m.? I do not know. He certainly could. I wouldn't mind that one bit. Like Paul wrote, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And I'm feeling like that more and more and more these days. Well, I want to talk about heaven today. And there's a study outline in your worship folder. You can reach in and pull that out, follow along with us. I know the topic of heaven can stir up a lot of different kinds of thoughts and feelings and emotions in people. Some people hear about heaven and they're filled with anticipation and longing. This is especially true with people who have lost loved ones who were believers and they have hope that there's going to be a grand and glorious reunion in heaven one day. And so they look forward to that with eager expectation. Other people, though, have a different response. When they think about heaven and their mental image of heaven, they're a little bit disappointed or fearful about what it's going to be like. I don't know, they think to themselves. I mean, I've seen those pictures of chubby angels, you know what I'm talking about, plunking away on golden harps, wafting on pillowy clouds. Is that heaven? Is that really what it's going to be like? And they're not wild about the thought. Others view heaven as the never-ending church service in the sky, the everlasting sing-along, you know, with one great hymn after another. For all of eternity, forever and ever. And they're thinking, man, I don't even like hymns, you know. Is is heaven going to be that great? 
One author I read this week opened my eyes to the fact that Satan loves to lie to people about heaven. Listen to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 6. He, Satan, opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place. That's heaven. And those who live in heaven. One man wrote this, Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He need only convince us that heaven is boring. And some people fear heaven. Others are just not interested. Life here and now seems so much more real, and so heaven's not on their radar screen. Others are confused about heaven because they've been taught many different things, and they've heard many different things, and they've seen movies, and they are all jumbled up in their mind as far as what heaven really looks like. And others just deny it. They don't believe that heaven exists. As we talk about heaven today, let's focus not on what my notion of it is or what your notion of it is, but on what the Bible actually says about heaven. I want to recommend a book to you. I reread it this week. It's called Heaven by a guy named Randy Alcorn, and he has really done his homework on what the scriptures say about heaven. And uh, you can pick up a copy of this in our bookstore. Great, great read, painting a picture for us from a biblical perspective of what heaven's really going to be like, and I'm surprised at how many misconceptions I have in my own head about heaven and what it's going to be like. The Bible says this, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So it's going to be mind-boggling, mind-stretching, mind-expanding. Sometimes we stop there, but the next verse says, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. And so God has revealed some things about heaven in his word in the Bible. Not everything, but some things. Let's tackle this question first. Is heaven real? Is heaven real? Well, if you believe the Bible and read it, you understand that the Bible talks about heaven a lot. 422 times, for example, the word heaven is mentioned in the Bible. So if you're going to deny the existence of heaven, you've got to somehow have a view of the Bible that's not trustworthy or reliable. And when we read in the Bible, we find that Jesus believed in a real heaven. He talked about it a lot. In John 6.38, that's what it should say on your outline, 6.38, Jesus said, I came down from heaven. He spoke a lot about the kingdom of heaven, told a lot of parables and stories about the kingdom of heaven. After his resurrection, he declared that he was ascending back up into heaven. It says he was taken up into heaven. And other people in the Bible were given these glimpses, these visions of heaven. My namesake, Stephen, in Acts 7, was given a brief glimpse into heaven where he said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God while his life was being taken from him. Paul was given a vision of heaven. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, I was caught up into the third heaven, the dwelling place of God, and I heard things that are unspeakable. And then John the Apostle was given perhaps the most comprehensive vision of heaven, and thankfully he wrote it down for us in the book of Revelation. We'll be looking there shortly. And of course, there have been a number of individuals throughout the years who have given interviews and written books claiming that they too have been given glimpses of heaven while their body was lying unconscious somewhere, that their spirit was drawn into another dimension of existence that they believed was heaven. You might recall a year ago, we had Don Piper standing right up here telling us that he believed he spent 90 minutes in heaven while people were trying to resuscitate his mangled body. Well, regardless of what you might believe about any of those 
accounts. The Bible itself is our ultimate truth source, and it tells us very, very clearly there is a heaven. It is a real place. And so if that's the case, what is heaven like? What does the Bible reveal about what this place is going to be like? Let's take a look at some of what the Bible says about heaven. The very first verse in the whole Bible, Genesis 1.1, tells us something. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created both heavens and earth, and it was very good. But then notice this promise that we find recurring again and again in the scriptures. For example, Isaiah 65.17, Behold, I will create new heavens. And a new earth. Interesting. Second Peter 3.13 in the New Testament. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So this tells us that heaven is going to change. God doesn't change, but the heaven that he created will change. We need to understand that heaven, often called the intermediate heaven, is one kind of place now, but it'll be a different kind of place At some point in the future, it's going to be made new by God. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and the dividing wall between heaven and earth will be erased. And it says that the new heavens will come down to the new earth. Very interesting. So heaven and earth will both be made new, recreated, refashioned, reformed by the one who made them in the first place. As I mentioned earlier, John, the apostle, was privileged to receive a vision of what this new heaven and new earth will be like. Listen to his account, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Very interesting. There's there's a reason for that, but we can't get into it right now. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new heaven, coming down out of heaven from God. That's interesting. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning, crying or pain, for the old order of things. That's what those things are. The old stuff has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So what will the new heaven be like? I noticed several things. Number one, heaven is a place. It's a place. I've heard some people say they believe heaven is a state of mind, kind of like after you've had some of grandma's bread pudding, and you're thinking, ah, I'm in heaven. Other people think it's kind of this ethereal realm of existence, very mystical. But I believe the Bible's clear. John describes heaven as a place. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you in John 14. I'm convinced the Bible teaches that heaven is a literal, material place that you can go to and be in. Yeah, it's a place, but it's a better place. Number two, it's a better place. Praise God. This is a sermon, by the way, where you can say amen every now and then if you hear something you agree with. Heaven's a better place. Better than this place. Hebrews eleven sixteen. Instead, they, talking about people of faith, were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And it's better. 
Heaven is a better place. Better than what? Better than this present earth. Better than here and now. Sometimes when you talk with people about heaven, you get the idea that they think that heaven is going to be kind of lame. You know? It's not going to be very good. But nothing could be further from the truth. Heaven, especially the new heaven, will be better. So much better. Better music, better art, better scenery, better weather, better food, better relationships, better cell phone coverage, better gasoline prices. It's going to be better. Actually, you won't need gasoline in heaven. We'll be able to transport from place to place in a whole different mode. Thank God. Heaven's going to be better. Don't let the devil or other people deceive you about what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is a place and it's a better place. Third, heaven is like a city or a country. Don't miss this. Hebrews 11 says, God has prepared a city. It's already completed is what we get from that, or near completion. God has prepared a city for his people. The passage we read in Revelation says that heaven will have a capital city called the New Jerusalem. Now we know what cities are like, don't we? We live in a city. Cities have... Buildings and streets and residences and lots and lots of people. Cities are full of the bustle of activity, aren't they? And cultural events and gatherings that involve music and arts and education and entertainment and sports. Fifteen times in Revelation 21 and 22, the place where God and his people will live together forever is called a city. Now some people say, well, yeah, but he didn't really mean city. Well, are you sure? (laughs) Are you sure? Why did he use the word so many times? Why does he give such a detailed description of the architecture, the walls, the streets, and the other features that make it sound a whole lot like a city, a real city? I think he did so because I believe heaven is a real city, not merely a figure of speech, but a literal geographical location. And the capital city... The new Jerusalem is going to be a breathtaking, stunning city. We haven't seen a city like this one before. I've been to a lot of cities, and you have too, but nothing like the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven and come crashing into the new earth. It's going to be amazing. We're given a description of it in Revelation 21, verse 10. John, again, writing it all that. I mean, he's trying to take in this vision, right? He's trying to write it down. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God. You've never been to a city that was full of the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. You kind of get the, John's fighting for words to describe what he's seeing. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and at the gates... And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. 12 is a pretty important number to God. You're going to see it a lot in the New Jerusalem. And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. That equals 12. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. He had the 12 tribes and now the 12 disciples slash apostles, their names inscribed there on the foundations. Verse 15, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Sounds like a city to me if you can measure it. 
And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. We'll find out how big that is in a moment. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which, as you know, is 12 times 12, which is also an angel's measurement. That's interesting. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. We've never seen that before, have we? Transparent gold. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx. I'll bet there's going to be 12. What do you think? The sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. That's where you get that term, pearly gates. And each of the gates was made of a single pearl. That's a big pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. We haven't seen this. John's trying to describe it in first century language. The New Jerusalem will be a city, but not a city like any city you've ever been. Not like Columbus, Ohio, or I was in Amsterdam a few weeks back. Or It's not like any other city we've ever seen. It's going to be immense in size. 12,000 stadia. How big is that? That's 1,400 miles long, wide, high. A city that big would stretch from Canada to Mexico. A city that big would stretch from here to Denver. Believe me, there will not be overcrowding in the new Jerusalem. Billions of people could easily occupy it. The ground level alone will measure 2 million square miles And that doesn't even take into account the city's dimension of height. It's possible that it's going to have multiple levels or stories to it. It's immense, huge. It's also very secure. Although there won't be any terrorists in heaven or burglars, it does talk about thick walls and gates, which is a picture of safety and security provided for us by our Savior. It's going to be a visually magnificent place, a feast for the eyes, stunning everywhere you look, a kaleidoscope of brilliant colors unlike anything you've ever seen, and transparent gold everywhere. What's that going to be like? It's going to be incredibly extravagant. It says that the foundation of the city walls are decorated with every kind of precious stone imaginable. Just think about brilliant light refracted through the deep hues of sapphire, amethyst, topaz, and emerald. This is not some cheap shanty town that God just threw together on a whim, okay? He's been preparing this place for millennia. He created the earth in six days. Just imagine something that he's constructed that he's been working on for ages. And then I think the reference to thick walls and solid foundations tells us that the city is going to be structurally sound. That's a good thing, huh? Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, calls it the city of foundations whose architect and builder is God. So no hurricane force winds, no tsunami waves, no levee breaching floods will be able to wash that city away, thank God. Families will have no fear of natural disasters uprooting them and carrying away their homes. Not in heaven. That happens here sometimes, but not there. It will be an architecturally amazing. You will spend eternity with your friends who knew Christ going, 
Check this out. Look over here. Oh, look at that. Oh, wow. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever being wowed by the architecture of this incredible city. And just in case you're getting worried that, you know, you're not going to like heaven that much because you don't care for city life. (laughs) Don't worry. If you prefer the outdoors and nature, the new Jerusalem will be filled with the beauty of natural wonders. It'll be the best of both worlds. Revelation 22, verse 1, the vision continues that John wrote down. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, a river, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. I was on the Nile River about a month ago, and it is not bright as crystal. It's murky as, it's nasty. This will be different. (laughs) Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So you're not going to have to leave the city to find natural beauty. It's going to be all around you. A pristine, crystalline river with life-giving water flows right alongside the main road of the city. Can you imagine on a beautiful day, sitting there with your friends, splashing your feet, in the river of life, talking and joking and laughing together in heaven. That's going to happen. It's going to be a beautiful place. It says the tree of life will be there. We've heard of that tree, haven't we? That was the tree that was back in the Garden of Eden. It's a special tree, apparently. So special that God is preserving it to be part of the scenery in the New Jerusalem. It's even hinted at in the Bible that the breathtaking Garden of Eden will be somehow relocated and refashioned in this city. I think there's something inside the people of God that yearns and aches for heaven, don't you? Aches for heaven. Isn't it true that even the best experiences on this earth, even the best experiences on this earth, leave us a little bit hollow and disappointed? Like they were overpromised but underdelivered. I think C.S. Lewis was right when he wrote this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't mean that this world, this universe is a fraud. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. See, we who know Jesus were made for heaven. We were made for heaven. And I haven't even touched on the absolute best part of heaven yet, which is that Jesus is going to be there. Listen to what he wrote, what John wrote again, Revelation 21, verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So the Lamb of God is going to be there. Jesus. John Piper, in one of his books, asks a very convicting question. He asks this, Would heaven be heaven for you if Jesus weren't there? Would heaven be heavenly to you if Jesus weren't there? Would mansions in glory and streets of gold and gates of pearl and even joyful reunion with family make heaven heavenly for you without Jesus? I hope not. 
Because what really makes heaven heavenly is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Heaven will be the place where Jesus will be, and he will be manifested in all of his glory. Isn't that what he wanted? Isn't that what he prayed for in John 17? Father, I want my people to be with me so they can see me in my glory. Deep desire. It's my deep desire to see him in his glory. Is it yours? You want to see Jesus as he really is? You know, he only gave a few brief glimpses of his glory in kind of shadow form when he was here on this earth for 33 years. Only a few people got to see it and they were almost overwhelmed by it. But in heaven, with our new bodies and our new eyes, we'll be able to receive and absorb the glory of Jesus Christ and not be consumed by it. Heaven is the place where we will bask in the glory of Jesus. We know Jesus is the Lamb of God. We know he's the veil. We know he's the priest. And here in this passage, it says he's the temple. John MacArthur writes this. Once inside the city, the first thing John noted was that there was no temple in it. Up to this point, talking about in the book of Revelation, up to this point, there has been a temple in heaven, the intermediate heaven. But there will be no need for a temple in the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Their blazing glory will fill the new heaven and the new earth, and there will be no need for anyone to go anywhere to worship God. Life will be worship, and worship will be life. Thus, there will be no need to go to a temple, to go to a cathedral, to go to church, to go to a chapel, or any other house of worship. And believers will finally be the true worshipers that God has always sought. You know, if you're truly one of Christ's redeemed people, then likely you've experienced in this life that longing, that longing to be in Jesus' presence and to worship him like he deserves in an unhindered way. You know, I mentioned Uganda a few times. We were there a month ago, and I was with this all-star team of people from New Life. You know, when you're with Claude Davis and Lori Brown and Cindy Schmidt and Nikki and Mimi, and I mean, it was just a great team. And we had this hour-long ride every day from where we were staying to Makono Village, and that was an hour on a good day, you know, sometimes an hour and a half to two hours, a very bouncy ride, just kind of miserable. But the way we often passed that time is we just started singing just kind of spontaneously started singing worship to God. Sometimes they were songs from the 60s and 70s, which Nikki struggled with because she wasn't even born. <laughs> and then some from the 80s and 90s, and even some from the most recent decade. And, and we would just sing and harmonize, and, and it was glorious. And I remember at one point just turning, over to, turning around to whoever was next to me and saying, you know, doesn't it feel like we were made for this? We were made. You were made to worship Jesus. You were made for Jesus. You were made for heaven. You were made for this. And in heaven, we will worship him in ways that we can only dream about here. We get little glimpses of it, don't we? Well, I want to take a few minutes that remain and attempt to answer a number of common questions that people have about life. In heaven, I'll try to answer these to the best of my understanding of what the Bible says or implies when it talks about heaven, okay? How about this one? Will we still have names in heaven? Will we know and recognize each other there? I believe the answer is yes. I really do. Jesus called by name people who were in heaven. He called them Lazarus and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They apparently still had their names. 
The fact that people in heaven can be called by the same name they had on earth demonstrates that there is some continuity now between earth and heaven. And we've studied this some together, haven't we? In heaven, I'm convinced I'll still be Steve. And you'll still be Jim or Betty or Gladys or whatever. We will know each other. We will recognize each other. Remember, heaven is better than earth. If we know each other on earth, does it make sense that heaven we would, in heaven we wouldn't know each other? Of course not. And of course, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, then we shall know fully even as we are fully known. So yes, you'll know people in heaven. We'll have names. We'll recognize each other. There will be some continuity between this life and the next. Will our bodies be different in heaven? Well, we studied that a lot, haven't we? The answer is yes and no. There will be some continuity. You'll be recognizable as the person you are now, but your body will be transformed and changed into a glorious resurrection body. Philippians 3.20. If you want to know more about that, go online and listen to all the sermons on 1 Corinthians 15. They'll be different, but not so different that we totally lose our identity. How about this one? Will we have gender in heaven? Will there be male and female? That's a good question. I'm going to venture out and say probably. Jesus himself is our prototype, right, of the resurrection body. And we know that after his resurrection, he was still male after he came out of the grave. I don't see in Scripture where people in heaven will become these androgynous beings with no gender. So I'm going to say probably. How about this one? How old will we be in heaven? Well, 41, of course. I mean, everybody knows that, right? That was actually a survey result a few years ago when Americans were asked, what's the ideal age? And I guess 41, one. But the real answer is we're not told. We're not told what age we'll be in heaven. Back in the Middle Ages, the church, the prevailing view of the church was that everyone would be 30 in heaven. Thomas Aquinas, you've heard of him, argued that when, argued that we will all be the age of Christ when he was crucified, so 33. But the truth is we don't know. We are not told. It's all speculation. Heaven will be a place of both maturity and perfection. And I would say this, regardless of the age that we will appear to each other, I believe that we will demonstrate the qualities of childlikeness that Jesus valued so greatly. Didn't he often say, of such is the kingdom of heaven? Like little children, so that innocence, that naivete, that wide-eyed amazement at new things, that eagerness to hear stories, that dependency upon others, childlike. Will we eat in heaven? Yes! <laughs> oh yes, we'll eat in heaven. Doesn't the Bible talk a lot about banquets and suppers and feasts? Luke 22, Isaiah 25, Revelation 19, 9, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. What do people do at feasts? They eat. <laughs> so of course we'll be eating in heaven. Jesus in his new glorified body ate. He also cooked for others. So for sure we'll be eating without some of the, you know, minus some of the ramifications of eating that we have here. You won't get an upset stomach in heaven because you ate the wrong thing. You won't put on additional poundage because of all you ate. We'll just be able to enjoy eating for eating's sake and do it with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Eating for the glory of God. New concept, maybe. <laughs> How about this? Will we remember our lives on the earth? Yes, I believe we will. 
Luke 16 and Revelation 6 give us a peek into heaven. And in both cases, the people there remember events here. That'll be interesting, won't it? To be there and think about what happened here. Choices we made, how we lived, people that we knew. That's hard to wrap the mind around. Here's a popular question. Will we become angels? And the answer? No. I know that's a popular notion in our culture, but you need to know there's no evidence for it in the Bible. These are two distinct kinds of beings, angels and humans, distinct. Yes, we will be transformed. Our bodies will be transformed, but not into angelic beings. Angels have their own personal histories, their own identities, their own names. Michael, Gabriel, distinct beings. In fact, it says that in heaven... Human beings in Christ will actually govern angels, will rule over angels. Well, we don't know what that's like. We haven't done that here, but that's 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Will there be any sin or disease in heaven? No, thank God. Revelation 21, 27. Will there be music, arts, and sports in heaven? I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably. For sure, music. Right? The Bible tells us there will be music in heaven, Revelation 14, 2 and 3. And you know, some of those people, uh, including Don Piper and others who have had these out-of-body experiences and believe they were given a glimpse of heaven, have almost universally said, the music. Oh, the music of heaven is unfathomable in its beauty. We have pretty good music here. But the music of heaven will knock our socks off. It will be glorious. Will there be iPods in heaven? Will people walk around with earbuds, you know? And I don't know. It doesn't say. does not say technology, you know. How about art? Well, the New Jerusalem is basically described as an exquisite work of art. Yes, there will be art. Yes, books will be written. Paintings will be painted. Sculptures will be sculpted. There will be beautiful, glorious art in heaven, better than the art on earth. Remember, heaven is better than earth. Keep that in your mind as the guiding principle. How about sports? You know, sports are not inherently sinful. Sports are not a result of the fall of man, you know, as some of you maybe might think. I believe there's going to be all these things, just minus the sinful, selfish, proud arrogance that so often accompanies these things here on the earth. Imagine playing a round of golf, on the new earth in the new Jerusalem with Payne Stewart or shooting some hoop skis with David Robinson or whatever you love to do on the earth, I believe those are going to be real possibilities in the new heaven. I do believe we will play and compete and have fun in heaven. Remember, we will be more childlike in heaven. And what do children love to do most? Play. (laughs) Of such is the kingdom of heaven. So I believe so. Next question, will we just sit around and play harps all the time? No! No! We will have assignments. We will be given tasks. We will discover. We will travel. We will rule and reign. We will have responsibilities. We'll be doing lots of things in heaven. We will interact and relate and live in community and enjoy a lot of the things we enjoy here and now, but unhindered by sin and flesh and pride. But no, we won't be sitting around playing harps all the time. Thank God. Will we be able to be in several places at once? Probably not. Probably not. That's an attribute of the creator, omnipresence, not the creature. We will, though, be able to move very rapidly from one place to another, transport ourselves in a unique way that 
we can't quite imagine yet, except in some few movies that maybe you've seen or books you've read. And we'll even be, t- be able to take our resurrected molecules through solid mass, like Jesus did, just appearing places, going through walls. Wild stuff. Will there be animals in heaven? Some of you lay awake at night wondering, will there be animals in heaven? I'm going to say apparently so. The Old Testament does describe animals coexisting peacefully in a future kingdom yet to come, Isaiah 11. And Revelation speaks of living creatures in heaven. And the Greek word is zoon, Z-O-O-N. You can see the connection there to animals. Horses are mentioned in Revelation chapter 19. And certainly while all dogs will go to heaven, cats are just too arrogant, so they won't make it in. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm just telling you the truth. No cats. All right. How about this one? Will there be sex in heaven? Some of you lay awake at night wondering about that. Here's my best shot. Probably not in the way that we know it here, but let me explain. Jesus said there will be no marriage in heaven, right? There apparently will be no sexual relations either, but since there will likely be no frustration of desire in heaven, it appears then that we will not even desire sex in the same way it's desired here. But again, remember, heaven is better than earth in every way. So I believe we will enjoy a relational experience of intimacy in heaven that far surpasses the sexual experience as we know it here. C.S. Lewis wrote this, We know the sexual life here. We do not know, except in glimpses, that other thing which in heaven will leave no room for sex there. So interesting. We'll see. How about this one? Will we be reunited with loved ones in heaven? It's a good question. And the answer? It depends. It depends. Depends on if they will be there and if you will be there. If so, there's a glorious reunion awaiting. But it begs the question, doesn't it? Who will go to heaven? Who will go to heaven? Who will go to heaven? <laughs> in near the end of John's vision, in Revelation 21, he wrote this, verse 27, Nothing impure will ever enter heaven. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those, listen, only those whose names, so we'll have names, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So not everyone will go to heaven. Some will go to another place that we'll talk about next weekend. The Bible is very clear. Heaven will be the eternal home of those whose names are recorded in a very important book. So there will be books in heaven. Names, names of the redeemed people of God who have been purchased for God by Jesus. You know, most people on our planet, even if they believe in some kind of heaven at all, believe that it's where good people will go when they die. That's the prevailing mindset, isn't it? Oh yeah, heaven, that's where good people go when they die. Ask people where the cutoff is how good you have to be to get in, and they will invariably place the line beneath themselves. They will say, well, I'm in. I know that. Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, 
Hitler, serial killers, rapists, predators, they're not going to make it, but I know I'm good enough. That's what most people will say. But one man wrote this. Heaven was not made for good people. It was made for perfect people. Heaven is not a good place designed for good people. It's a perfect place prepared for perfect people. And this is, of course, upsetting. Because all humans know intrinsically that none of us are perfect. And people recoil at the notion that perfection would be required of us. But didn't Jesus himself say in Matthew 5, 48, Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's the natural human tendency to believe, for people to believe that, you know, God, if there is a God in their mind, certainly must grade on the curve, right? (laughs) He certainly must take human weakness into account. Surely he would notice our efforts and see how hard we tried. And he certainly would not demand perfection as the entrance requirement for heaven, would he? But the Bible declares in no uncertain terms that this is exactly the case. That heaven is a perfect place prepared for perfect people and therefore no human being deserves to go to heaven. But the astoundingly great and surprisingly good news is that there is a perfection available to human beings that makes them fit for life in heaven. That would be a place to say amen, probably. (laughs) The Bible calls this perfection the righteousness of God. This perfection was lived out in daily life by Jesus perfectly in his 33 years on this planet. And he then proceeded to die on a cross, purchasing with his own blood the right to give his perfection to whoever he chooses. And he chooses to give it to those who stop trying to be good enough who stop trying to be good enough, who stop trying to present their credentials, their resume, and tell God why they deserve to go to heaven, who forsake all of their own efforts and cling only to the sacrifice of Jesus. That's who he gives his perfection to. And those people alone will be the perfected people who will live in a perfect place forever. Now, those of you who are regular New Lifers know this is called the gospel, and we talk about the gospel a lot around here. And many, many, many of you believe the gospel, and as a result, you believe that you're going to be in heaven not based on your own merits, right? But that it's based on the merits of Jesus Christ and what he did for you, and you're not going to have your backpack full of stuff that you're going to try to impress God with. You're just going to say, Jesus died for me. (laughs) He gave me his gift of righteousness and perfection. That's why... You should let me into heaven, Father. But there are some in this room, without a doubt, who have not yet embraced that truth, that gospel. And I would so encourage you. I don't know if Jesus is going to come back on Saturday. He may. But it behooves us, regardless of when he comes back, to be prepared to go at any time. And so the question is that is of most importance, are you ready to go? Do you understand the gospel? And if you you don't, I urge you, I implore you to talk with someone in this room before you leave today. To say, can you explain this to me, how Jesus' perfection can get credited to me? Or or go out to the lobby in our little display rack out there and pick up one of these little pamphlets called the gospel and lay out for you the Bible message of how people are actually made right with God 
and can gain acceptance into heaven. Or call a pastor here at the church this week. We would love to talk to you about that. It's critical. What, what to you, what is more important really than that? Because our existence here in this life is just but a sliver, but a fraction of our existence in eternity. Will you be prepared for heaven? Well, I want to finish with something I read recently that struck a chord deep inside of me about heaven. So just listen to this. We are born with two impulses. These impulses jostle each other within us from the womb to the grave. They make us constantly restless, anxious, weary, sometimes cranky. The first impulse is to go beyond. We crave discovery, adventure, to find that which has never yet been seen, to fling out wide to the horizons, to go beyond. And the second impulse is to go home. We cherish the familiar. We long for the way we were. To go beyond, to go home. The impulse to go beyond makes us feel perpetually bound here on the earth. We're held back. With every new step we take towards the horizon, the further away it seems to move. The impulse to go home makes us feel perpetually exiled here. Home forever eludes us. We go back to the place where we grew up, the town. We go back to the high school we went to, the little church where we got married. But we don't see whatever it is we were looking for. We don't find it. It's gone. We only hear it far away and fainting and kind of haunting. Why won't we be bored in heaven? Because it's the one place where both impulses to go beyond and to go home are perfectly joined together and totally satisfied. It's the one place where we'll constantly be discovering, where everything will always be fresh, and yet where we are fully at home, where everything is as it ought to be, and we finally find that mysterious something we never found down here, And this lifelong melancholy that hangs over us, this wishing we were someone else, somewhere else, all of that vanishes too. Our craving to go beyond will always and fully be realized and our yearning for home will be once and for all fulfilled. The ah of deep satisfaction and the aha of fresh and new surprise meet in heaven and they kiss. What will that be like? We can only guess. I close with this from C.S. Lewis, who wrote, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we ever really desired anything else but heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for heaven. I thank you for your promise that you've prepared a place for your people. What a place. We can't imagine it. Thank you for it, Lord. I thank you for the many, many, many in this room who believe the gospel. Even in this moment, they believe it. They cherish it. Their their faith, their hope, what they're relying on is not their own efforts, not their own achievements or credentials, but Jesus Christ's blood shed on the cross for them. Thank you. Thank you that so many are so assured that they will be in heaven. It's as if they were already there. They're that certain because they know the one in whom they have believed. I pray for some in this room who have never come to that point yet. They're really not assured of their final destiny. 
what all of this maybe seems far off or maybe kind of weird. But I pray you would grant that wonderful gift of opening their eyes, giving them grace, prompt them to talk to someone, to explore this message of the gospel, how to receive the perfection that Jesus Christ achieved for us. Draw people to Jesus that they might become believers and be assured of a heavenly home one day. Thank you, Lord. You are good. Your mercy endures forever. We praise you and worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.